Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. From beignets to poor boys, gumbo to jambalaya, and crawfish to boudin, Louisiana's cuisine is as eclectic as it is delectable. On this week's show, we explore our state's rich food culture based on centuries of Creole and Cajun traditions. We begin with New Orleans native and Southern Food and Beverage Museum founder, Liz Williams. She spent many years researching her award-winning book, New Orleans, a food biography, which would go on to be selected for the One Book, One New Orleans program during the city's tricentennial year. Liz explores the roles history, geography, and economics played in shaping the Crescent City's distinct culinary identity. We also take a close-up look at Louisiana's most emblematic foods with author Maggie Hine Richardson before stirring up our appetite for roux, rice, and gumbo with Stanley Dry. We've got a real taste of the state on this week's Louisiana Eats. Liz Williams is a force of nature. She's the founder of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, served in the U.S. Army as a JAG officer, and taught arts administration law as well as historic preservation law. In her award-winning book, New Orleans, A Food Biography, Liz guides readers through the history of our city as viewed through a food lover's lens, showing how the natural environment and people shaped our exceptional cuisine. When we spoke in 2014, I began by asking her how this ambitious project came about. I, all through the time of putting together the museum and everything, was doing a lot of work on the food of New Orleans because that was a part of the museum. And I kept looking for that definitive statement of why we have a cuisine in New Orleans. And all I could find were those assertions that all these ethnic groups came together in the same place and there was great bounty and because of that it kind of wrapped itself together and became a cuisine. And I said, you know, that could be said of so many places. There were many ethnic groups coming together. There was great bounty, but nothing ever became a cuisine. And I couldn't figure out why we had a cuisine. And those same conditions might have existed someplace else, and they didn't have one. So this book was my sort of tracking it all down with my own little theories of why we have a cuisine. One of the subtitles in the book that caught my attention immediately was the mythology of Creole food. Now, let's talk about the myth versus the reality from your point of view. Okay. 
first of all, because there is a myth, it tells you how important it is to our culture. And it's so one with our culture. So because of that, I think the fact that there is mythology is important. But we have creation myths. We have myths that explain certain things that we do. And I think all of that, it means that we are trying to tell the truth with a capital T through mythology. And that truth is that we all eat this food, that this food makes us one. And I think that that is the ultimate truth of the mythology. Now, do I think that it's accurate? No. (laughs) Well, give me some examples of some of those myths. I was fascinated to read about Madame Langlois. Tell us about her. Madame Langlois is the mythical housekeeper of Bienville. And she was supposed to be the person who would be able to teach others how to cook Creole cuisine, even before it was called Creole cuisine, (laughs) to anyone who was new to the area. I'm really kind of surprised that we don't have a statue by now to the great first (laughs) cooking teacher of New Orleans, you know. So she somehow figures into the story of the Petticoat Rebellion, right? That's right. The Petticoat Rebellion is the story of the housewives of New Orleans, uh, including some of the casket girls, who (laughs) were so distressed that they didn't know how to cook the food of this new world that they took their pots and pans and wooden spoons and banged them like drums up and down the street to Bienville's house and demanded that someone teach them how to cook. Of course, there's no evidence that she was there. The fact that people found the house of Bienville as though it was this house there instead of just a place that and that where he was encamped or whatever, and that it was the casket girls who weren't, you know, who were certainly not co at the same time as Bienville. So all of that, I think, is just it's fabulous. And what do you posit on this? Well, I think that the creation of the whole cuisine is actually related to the fact that we were a French colony and not an English colony. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that the French were interested in food and cuisine is something that you see in that myth. So that is the truth of it, that there was a desire to eat well. Aside from those Europeans, I agree with you about this so wholeheartedly that the contribution of the Native Americans has been so overlooked in the cuisine. As you outline how the cuisine formed here, you make a special note of a people who you termed the Amera Indians. What were their contributions to Louisiana's food? Well, I think that they were important in a number of ways. First of all, they already had identified all these wonderful foods to eat. And when Iberville and Bienville came and the early peoples came, they relied so heavily on the Indians, the Native Americans, to show them what was available and where they could find it and how they could access it and all of that sort of thing. I believe that if they hadn't had that relationship, that it would have been many, many years before many of the things that we 
eat now were would have been discovered because no one would have known that those oysters were there or no <laughs> one would have known that you can eat these frogs or whatever if they, they hadn't done that. Or the sassafras. Or the sassafras, absolutely. I always find that a particularly interesting element of the discussion because, you know, you will have the people who will swear on a stack of Bibles that it's all about okra and the Bantu word kingumbo. Mm -hmm. And somehow it has been so overlooked and forgotten that it was the French calling the sassafras filet for thread, but the Choctaws called it combo. So is it kingumbo or is it combo? Do you think we'll ever know? I don't think we will. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so either. So I'm not quite sure how you feel about this next term. And I hate it when it is said all like one thing, Cajun Creole, Creole Cajun. That makes me crazy. Where did that come from? Well, this is also part of my theory. I really think that during the time of the 1984 World's Fair, the food of Louisiana could be found at little stations all throughout the Louisiana Pavilion. You had food writers and travel writers who came to the city, and they were here for two days or three days or whatever, and they ate the whole state in this one place. And <laughs> and that happened to be in New Orleans, too. That's so right. That that's furthered right. their confusion. That's right. And they didn't really understand the difference between Cajun and Creole cuisine. They didn't have the benefit of eating Cajun food in Cajun country and Creole food here in New Orleans. They ate it all together, and they didn't understand the geography or whatever, and it wasn't laid out within the pavilion in any geographic way. I I remember it being like one long linear thing Mm -hmm. that's now part of Riverwalk that didn't really make any sense. That's right. So they, they couldn't really figure it out just from eating there. And then they had to write articles about it, and they realized that they were confused or they didn't even realize there was a difference. And so if you look at articles from Bon Appetit and Gourmet and all of those magazines that were out at the time, that's when you start to see Cajun Creole written together, which they ate in New Orleans. And so then people started to request it here in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. and of course, restaurants wanted to give the tourists what they wanted. So then you started to get the use of that phrase even in New Orleans. Copeland's Cajun American Cafe. That's right. There's a, and, and people who would come here and say, I'm going to go to New Orleans and eat some of that spicy Cajun food. And that was really not what was going to happen until fairly recently since we're getting some authentic real Cajun cooking here with Koshan and places like that. Right. And, and then there was also the confusion caused by poor Paul Prudhomme. Well, I was going to bring him up because I have always actually blamed this on him. He brought his Cajun ingredients from Cajun country, stuff we never saw here before in the city, took it to the Palace of Creole Cooking, Commander's Palace. Mm-hmm. And there, in my belief, the confusion began, but you further identified it for me with the World's Fair. I think it was a combination of those things. I think it was personified by Paul Prudhomme, and it just made more sense to everybody because (laughs) here they had a person that they could identify that all of this was confused in or conflated (laughs) or whatever. And, And yet at the same time, their own experience by coming here and writing these articles was at the World's Fair. 
Coming up next, our conversation continues with Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, a food biography. Liz explains how the bounty that created Creole cuisine came from both up and down the Mississippi River and through the natural port of New Orleans. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. If you're just joining us, We've been revisiting our 2014 conversation with Liz Williams, author of the award-winning book, New Orleans, a food biography. One of the many topics she explores is the development of Creole cuisine from the vantage of both up and down the Mississippi River and from France, where the Age of Enlightenment was changing attitudes everywhere. Well, I learned so much from your book, and... I had always looked at one of New Orleans' great geographic advantages, being a port city, as being the place where all of the commodities and luxuries from the Caribbean and Europe and the whole rest of the world could just pour into this city. But I had never really given any thought about what the rest of America was sending to us downriver. So what was coming down the river from the rest of America that you feel figures into this conversation? Well, certainly when we started to get wheat from the rest of the world, I think that that was really, really important. We were getting cranberries. We were getting all of those wonderful other things that were part of America uh, that we you know, wouldn't have gotten before. And then when we became a state, and we started to have the Americans come in here, then, you know, we had all of the kinds of practices, especially the English practices mm-hmm. uh, and, and styles of eating and all that sort of thing. I actually believe, even though we were very big on accepting everything here, like bourbon and all those wonderful things that came down the river. Yeah, and what's why not, not to like about that? Exactly. So all of that was real. But if I had to quantify influence, I would say our influence out 
was actually bigger than the influence of what we got from the rest of America, not necessarily from the rest of the world, but from the rest of America. Yeah, of course, bananas, my goodness. Exactly. If it weren't for New Orleans, I don't think Americans would eat bananas for breakfast every day like uh, they do. Absolutely, and they wouldn't be drinking coffee either. I mean, this was what they call the natural port. And so as they started to grow coffee in Martinique and in Central America and then later in uh, South America, it all came up to America through New Orleans. I also loved your chapter on restaurants. And I would like you to explain your views on the Age of Enlightenment, especially the French Enlightenment, where you connect that directly with the restaurant culture here? Well, we learn about the Age of Enlightenment in school, <laughs> but often we mush together the English Enlightenment and the French Enlightenment. We don't really make a big distinction between those two, but they were very, very different. The English Enlightenment, which we often call the Age of Reason, was all about being rational and scientific and that sort of thing. The French Enlightenment was also about rationality and order, but they began to order the arts. And when they ordered the arts, they looked at the senses and they said, this is something that has several parts. There's the creation of something to be sensed. So that's music, that's art, that's literature, that's food. And then there's the other art, which is the art of appreciating those things so that you know, then know how to listen to music. You learn how to look at paintings. You learn how to appreciate what you eat. That is its own art. So all of that began to be systematically discussed, and it was something that caused the haute cuisine to develop in Paris. It was related to the cause of the restaurant opening. And those attitudes were brought here by the people who were coming here. Even if they weren't schooled in it, they absorbed it just by being part of the culture. And so those were the people who were here who were saying, we're in France. Now, that's a second distinction between the French and the English colonies. The English always saw England as the motherland and the colonies as the colonies that were emulating being English. The French considered every place that they were to be France. And so that's why when we talk about Iberville and Bienville, who never ever went to what we call France, but we never learned that in school. We just learned that there were the French settlers here and the French founders, but they never set foot in France. Well, you discuss all of these different cultures and the contributions that they made, and I know that you yourself are of a Sicilian heritage, so go ahead and boast a little <laughs> bit about your people and tell us about their world and their contributions. Well, like many, many immigrants, they came and got into the food business, not only because the Sicilians were already in the food business, but because it was the kind of thing that you could get involved in without speaking the language and without needing a major investment. So many of them worked in the French market. My great-grandfather was a butcher in the French market. And, of course, they were living in the French 
Quarter and in Treme at a time when the French Quarter was really known as the Italian sector, mm. you know, because there were so many Italians there. And so they've definitely left their mark. They were growing different vegetables, things that we weren't already growing here. And uh, there's the snowball. I really didn't know that we had the Sicilians to thank for the snowball. The Sicilians were bringing an Italian habit. It wasn't only Sicilian, but it was an Italian habit of getting snow and putting flavored uh, syrups on the snow and eating it. And that's why snowballs are not crushed ice mm -hmm. because this was to emulate snow. And so you wanted to shave the ice to get something that was fluffier and finer than you could ever crush ice. And I, I think that that's a, a real connection that you can see and, and why it's, it's not crushed. And, of course, our Creole sauce became transformed into red gravy. That's right. That's right. I love the idea that this New World vegetable, the tomato, went back to Europe and then was in some places rejected and people were afraid that it was poisonous and everything because of the nightshade. But in <laughs> southern Italy and in Sicily, it was embraced. And then after canning and Napoleon and all of that sort of thing, they began to can those vegetables. And tomatoes are well suited for canning because they have a high acid content and all of that sort of thing. So people began to use canned tomatoes at a time that fresh tomatoes weren't available, and they brought that habit back to New Orleans, which it really wasn't here before. There is another whole chapter on cookbooks and home cooks. And tell me your opinion about what is special or different here than in the rest of the U.S. when it comes to our philosophy of food at home. We eat well at home. We have culture that requires, you know, red beans and rice on Mondays and other sorts of things that we all recognize. And so I think one of the things that's important about eating at home in New Orleans is that you have a very high standard of what is going to be good and it's going to be home cooking that is almost the standard. And our restaurants have very often tried to be as good as home. Mm. And I think a lot of times in other places, you know, you don't expect that from home cooking. You don't expect excellence. It's an extraordinary thing when you have a really, really good home cook. And uh, we eat the same things at home as people eat in restaurants. And we go through the trouble at home that people go through in restaurants. And so I think that that's something, obviously, in more modern times that may be being lost a little bit. And we use convenience foods and that sort of things in ways that our great-grandparents didn't do or whatever. So we do live in the modern world. But I do believe that our home cooking is... Um, like the best gumbo is my mama's gumbo or oh, my grandmother's gumbo. It is the quintessential gumbo, not the gumbo at such and such a restaurant. That's not the quintessential gumbo. I hardly ever eat gumbo out, to tell you the truth. Right, right. <laughs> well, when we're thinking about New Orleans and our situation today, how it is to live here, and we've got such an influx of new people, our, our newcomers, God bless them. They're bringing such a breath of fresh air into the city. But 
Do you think we're in danger of losing some of that home cook tradition? Well, I think we are, not only because of the influx of new people, but just because everyone's lives are, are changing. There's the whole national movement of eating out more and all of that sort of thing. So we're not immune from all of that. We are part of the U.S. after all, uh, even though sometimes I think we forget <laughs> it. Um, so yes, I think all of those things are affecting our home cooking. But I do believe that those of us who are here post-Katrina are also sensitive to what there is to lose. And so I don't believe it's going to go away. I think it will just change. And we've always had change. And it actually, to me, is a tribute to the vitality of the cuisine that it continues to change instead of just going away. Because you can ossify something and you can say, we won't let it change, and then it just dies. That's correct. And we are not letting it die. We're allowing it to evolve. Well, Liz, this has been such an interesting conversation, and I really want to offer you big congratulations on what I believe is a classic must-have book for every Louisiana food lover. Congratulations. Thanks so much for having me. Liz Williams, author and founder of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, speaking with us in 2014. You can find her book, New Orleans, a food biography, on bookstore shelves across the Crescent City. Richardson is an author, blogger, and award-winning journalist based out of Baton Rouge. In 2015, she authored a book entitled Hungry for Louisiana, the ultimate omnivore's journey through our delicious state. This insightful hardback offers a fresh look at eight of our most emblematic foods, including boudin, Creole cream cheese, and of course, crawfish. We spoke with Maggie just after the book's release. So we begin with crawfish because, well, it is sort of the food that begins the year for us in many ways. What about crawfish did you find particularly compelling? Well, it's funny that the book did come out in the spring and that we arranged the chapter so that, you know, crawfish was, was the first one. You know, like everyone who moves here, I've ha I had that moment, you know, of my first crawfish boil and learning how to peel and eat them. And I've done it a million times since then. And we boil them as, as a family, you know, with my husband's family. Um, but I think one of the things that's most interesting about crawfish is how it has been exported beyond its original boundaries. You know, it's permeated the state. Crawfish are as common in North Louisiana as they are in South Louisiana now. And I think that's what's so alluring about it is that we are locked in a common purpose, you know, with everybody else who is enjoying crawfish at that moment. And that's where you really get at this kind of shared recreational pattern. You know, it's understood this is how you're going to spend your spring in Louisiana. Um, and, that, and just for the, the pure enjoyment of food and drink and friends and family and laughing, I mean, it's just that that ritual, that springtime ritual is so special and so unique. 
Now, everybody is familiar with the boudin we eat all the time that's that delicious, spicy rice sausage that is so delicious you get it at a gas station and drive along eating your link of boudin. But I'm not really familiar with red boudin. How did that end up becoming a chapter in its own right? Well, I... I wanted to include Boudin, but I felt like that story had been told, you know, numerous times. And it is certainly on the radar, I think, of national food writers. Calvin Trillin wrote that beautiful piece in The New Yorker many years ago. Um, and, and so I wanted an angle that hadn't been reported. And I also, from the perspective of preserving food traditions, which is, you know, an intention of the book, um, I wanted to look at Red Boudin. And I had been to Bourgeois Meat Market numerous times for stories and just for, for pleasure, for personal grocery shopping, and knew that they made Red Boudin and had tasted it and thought it was fabulous. And this is that Shriver area, so that Bayou country area, that part of Cajun country that is separate separate from the Acadiana Prairie. But Bourgeois has been around. It's probably the oldest Cajun meat market in the state and was established in the late 1800s by the current owner's grandfather. And um, he originally had kind of a, a truck, you know, that he would slaughter one cow or pig at a time, go around this little constellation of small towns in, in the orbit of Shriver, and didn't come home until he sold everything. And so this meat market, you know, evolved into a permanent shop, which was a meat market and slaughterhouse, and, and it's existed ever since and has always sold boudin. And then later added what one of the things that it's most famous for, which is beef jerky. Oh, that beef jerky. Yeah, it's oh, incredible. That is a miracle in meat. Yeah. <laughs> now explain the red boudin. So the red boudin. Well, when I started the project, you know, using some of the resources of our mutual friend Sarah Rowan and the Southern Foodways Alliance, looking at the boudin trail that they traced, you know, I knew that there were a few places to start who still made red boudin. So I reached out to all three at the time. Um, one was in Abbeville, one in Brobridge, and the other was Bourgeois, which I knew well. And by the time I finished the project, only one was still making um, red boudin, and that was bourgeois. Well, God bless those bourgeois. And another one of your topics, our tamale tradition. Tamales is a special case all on their own, huh? Well, you know, I wanted a chapter that brought in North Louisiana in a real, you know, in a very obvious way. I didn't want to give North Louisiana short shrift, you know. Um, this tiny town in northwest Louisiana, about an hour south of Shreveport, has been making this version of a tamale for more than 100 years. That tamale itself is smaller, simpler, while spicy. It does not have chili powder or cumin. It's wrapped in what the locals call a shuck, which is the softened corn husk, not wax paper, and comes with no sauce like you might see in the Delta. How did that start? Well, it's derivative of Spanish soldiers who were positioned, you know, in, in New Spain at the time. We know that the tamale is originally a Mesoamerican dish, you know, from Mexico, um, highly portable, made with corn, fill it with some sort of protein, whatever that was, pack it and take it with you. And so that tradition was brought by those Spanish soldiers who were in Texas and at the time that western part of Louisiana. It was also a strong Native American tradition. So many of the locals there point to the Native American as the source of um, where the tamale came from. But the fusion of those two cultures is what resulted in this particular tamale. That is so interesting. And, you know, this is such a amalgamation, your book, and each chapter ends with recipes. How in the world 
Did you talk those people in Zwali out of their official Zwali tamale <laughs> recipe? Well, they're public with that recipe. That's published and passed out. Um, and in fact, at the fiesta, the annual tamale fiesta, there's also a booth for in- instructing spectators on how to make tamales in the old-fashioned way. So there's a strong tradition. What tradition? That is the word that is a unifying theme here in Louisiana. Why do you think that the people of Louisiana cling so tenaciously to these traditions? I think it's there are a number of factors that influence that. One has been our immigrant mix that have made these traditions flourish. You know, so you, you get food festivals. Food festivals were developed around this notion of, hey, we are we are really good at this. You know, we know what we're doing, and this is ours, and let's bring people in and have them come celebrate this food. So throughout the 20th century, you've seen the, those traditions not only remain, but strengthen as a result of, I think, people just understanding that they're so special and they want to spread the word. And the other thing is, we just have a tremendous number of natives. We have more native born in Louisiana than there are in any other state. And so it's really easy to pass down those traditions. Because we don't like to leave yeah. home. When your mom lives down the street and she can show you how to make gumbo or, you know, when you've got aunts and uncles who can show you how to make crawfish. I mean, it's just, it's seamless from generation to generation. And we are so tethered, I think, you know, to to memory and to family when we enact these traditions. When you get into the various Louisiana dishes, in your opinion, what do you think our most endangered foods might be? Well, certainly red boudin. And I think that Creole cream cheese, it's probably, while it, I think it's doing well now, its trajectory has been kind of wobbly over the, over the last few years, as we have both discussed and observed. Um, I was so excited not two or three weeks ago to see it in my local grocery store from the Motes. Oh, that was such so a moment, wonderful. you know? I mean, the book had come out, and there is their Creole cream cheese. So that's exciting to see that really spread, I think, um, in an institutional way, not just in farmer's markets, but having it, you know, through a a regular traditional, you know, commercial enterprise. And then I guess if anything ever should happen to that precious snow blitz machine of Ashley Hansen's, we would all really be in trouble. That's right. That was such an interesting story, too, because unlike all the other snowball operators out there, she's working with a machine that is unlike no other, that has no replacement parts like the others, you know. So, yeah, there's a little tale about having that machine fixed that um, I was so happy that Ashley shared with me. Well, I'm so happy that you have shared all of your research and your wisdom and just your really thoughtful insights into our delicious, delicious Louisiana. Thanks for this great book, Maggie. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Maggie Hine Richardson, author of Hungry for Louisiana, speaking with us in 2015. What is Boudin Noir? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back.
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What is boudin noir? Boudin noir, also known as red boudin, is an increasingly scarce traditional Cajun sausage made with pig's blood. But there's nothing bloody about it. It's spicy, incredibly rich, and luckily still made at Bourgeois Meat Market in Shriver, Louisiana. Until the 1970s, most meat markets were also slaughterhouses, but changing state and federal regulations brought about boudin noir's near demise. To use an animal's blood, it must be slaughtered in the presence of federal inspectors. Consequently, the number of operations where that's possible has shrunk to less than 20 in the state of Louisiana today. If you're interested in learning more about Boudin Noir and where you can still find it, pick up a copy of Maggie Hine Richardson's Hungry for Louisiana, because one thing's for sure, Maggie's always hungry for a little Boudin. I'm Poppy Tooker, and this is Louisiana Eats. Editor for Louisiana Life magazine and contributor to the Southern Foodways Alliance, Stanley Dry has a deep love for Louisiana cooking. In 2014, the New Iberia resident published The Essential Louisiana Cookbook, a collection of 50 recipes that celebrate our state's rich food landscape. We all know Louisiana's culinary identity is a complex tapestry of French, Spanish, African, and Native American cultures. Stanley's collection of recipes not only honors that diversity, but it also investigates the stories behind the dishes. The Essential Louisiana Cookbook features traditional recipes like crawfish etouffee, sauce piquant, and red beans and rice. But when Stanley joined us in 2015, his appetite was focused on roux, 
rice, and gumbo. Well, roux is so important to uh, Louisiana cooking, and it sounds like a fairly simple thing because it's, it's just flour that's cooked in oil. And certainly it has its roots in uh, French cooking, where roux is used in so many dishes. But to make it without burning it is a whole other thing. I certainly burned my share, and if you take your eye off it for an instant, you can burn it, or if you let it go a little too far, you can burn it, and then you throw the whole thing out because there's no resurrecting a, a burned roux. If you've written the, the Essential Louisiana Cookbook, what is the most essential thing in Louisiana cooking? Well, a roux would be right up there at the top, wouldn't it? I mean, that's you've got to have it for a lot of things. Of course, you know, people bring up bottled and prepared roux, you know. My feeling is that the prepared roux are very good. And from what I've seen, an awful lot of people use them. They're widely, widely used. When you had, when people used to have cooks and the cooks cooked every day, and they, for the most part, they didn't make a, a roux every time they started a dish. They would make up a pot of roux that would be enough to last them for a week or so. And then they would have it ready whenever they were doing the dishes. Restaurant chefs, the same thing. They don't start from scratch and make a roux each time. They make a big pot of roux, have it ready, and then the roux is ready when they use it. Now, I think if you are lucky enough to have a special kind of fat, you know, if you're lucky enough to have some duck fat or even some bacon <laughs> grease, you know, you can make something that's different from what you're going to get in the bottle. But if you're going to use some vegetable oil and some flour, uh, I think it uh, comes out about the same. Well, let me ask you this. What is your favorite dish in the whole book? What's your favorite thing? Oh, my favorite dish in the whole book? Oh, probably one of the gumbos. I just, gumbo's one of my favorite dishes, if not my favorite dish of anything, really. Just to see it and smell it cooking is, is great. I've always found when I'm, when I'm learning to make something, I, I don't want to read just one cook's explanation of it. I want to read three or four or five or six because none of them are going to be the same. They're all going to be different. And you learn so much more by comparing what different people do if you do that, you can kind of develop your own personal style and approach to it. So that's just the way that I learned. And, and also, I mean, you, you continue learning, I think, and watching other people doing it. You pick up things that you didn't, you didn't know before. You know, even recipes that I've published, when I, when I make them again, even after they've been published, I keep working on them and changing them. And, you know, it's never finished. You're always trying to make it better, right? That's right. And that's what makes it so interesting, so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, what's your favorite uh, pot to make a roux in? A black cast iron skillet, yeah. I mean, it's not a family heirloom, but it's, I've, it, I've had it for a good while. I've had it for a good while. I remember one guy telling me, he said, well, he said, sometimes when I'm in a hurry, I'll make my roux in the microwave. <laughs> he said, but you know, he said, I just don't feel right about it. <laughs> and I do think that for making a roux, and this is true for a lot of different things, even if you're mostly going to buy the roux in a jar and use that, you still should learn how to do it. And from time to time, it makes sense to do it because it puts you closer with the ingredients. It's like anything in cooking, I think. I used to be, I mean, when I was younger, I was a... I was an absolute purist. I mean, I wouldn't use an electric mixer to whip cream, you know, because I felt like whipped cream was better if you used a, a whisk. 
And maybe it is. I don't know. But I'm now I use a mixer. <laughs> <laughs> I used to not own any electrical uh, small appliances. You know, I've outgrown some of those things. <laughs> what do you think the most challenging thing in cooking Louisiana food is? Maybe besides the roux. Well, I think getting the um, the flavors right because, you know, the combination of flavors and the amount of things that you put in there because oftentimes if you get away from Louisiana and you go to restaurants that have Louisiana food, things are just not quite right. Um, Louisiana food got a reputation as being just fiery hot with pepper, and that's what a lot of people think that Louisiana food is, you know. <laughs> What's the most unusual gumbo you've ever had? I've judged at the gumbo cook-off in New Iberia for a number of years, and they have different categories. They have one category that is called melange. Okay. You don't know what's in there. <laughs> they can put anything in it. Uh, then with some of my friends who uh, hunt, I've had some interesting gumbos, you know, with duck and partridge and dove and, you know, all, uh-huh. kinds, of, all kinds of things in there. There's one gumbo that, um, that I make from time to time. It's the only one that I make that I don't uh, generally eat with rice, and that's a um, dried shrimp and egg gumbo. Mm. But you know what's interesting? Louisiana didn't really become a big rice-producing state until the late 19th century mm-hmm. when a lot of Midwesterners came down and started out in southwest Louisiana raising rice. Before then, there was rice production in Louisiana, but it was a, a more occasional kind of thing. Sometimes they called it Providence rice because it depended on the rainfall rather than they didn't weren't irrigating it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a travel book written by a man named Roban. I think it was R.R. Roban. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. You, you're, fam- you're familiar with that? He traveled in Louisiana, I think it was about 1803, 1804, 1805. And he said in the travel book that when he was served gumbo, it wasn't served with rice. It was served with a cornmeal mush. Mm. Now that I didn't know. And an interesting thing with that, uh, my ear, nose, and throat doctor, he hunts all over the world. And he was on a safari in Africa, I forget which country, and they had shot some small birds. And... He taught the camp cooks how to make gumbo. They didn't know anything about gumbo, but he taught them how to make gumbo. They didn't have any rice in the camp, so what did they serve it with? A cornmeal mush. Oh. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. How does gumbo get its name? Well, I'm not sure that we can really say for sure. Do you, don't you think? I mean, gumbo was the, that was the word for okra, wasn't it? Yeah, keen gumbo. Keen gumbo, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think there's some other theories on it also. Well, I wanted to see if you had a theory on it because I just it's one of my favorite things to say, and we'll never know yeah, for sure. We'll never know. Unless we learn how to time travel. Right. <laughs> Author Stanley Dry on Rue, Rice and Gumbo joining us in 2015. You can find a copy of the Essential Louisiana Cookbook and his 2016 follow-up, The Essential Louisiana Seafood Cookbook, at your local independent bookseller.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.